This is the transition time. We're finishing the Minor Prophets today. Remember at the very beginning of the Minor Prophets, I told you that when you put all the Minor Prophets together in a panorama, you learn something about God's incredible love and his patience. Each of the Minor Prophets dealt uh, with something slightly different issue. They had some things in common, which we're going to see today with Malachi. This is the last one. So let me remind you of the history. Solomon died in 931 B.C., 10th century. 150 years later, well, as soon as he died, they had a civil war split between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, 10 tribes to the north and then uh, two tribes to the south. And the northern kingdom immediately departed from the Lord, came up with their own worship centers and all of that. And there weren't many, very many good kings in the north. And so 150 years later, God went after them, sent Hosea and Amos after them to really encourage them to come back. They didn't listen. So while that was happening, you have the Assyrians over here beginning to grow in power. And so we looked at some of the language where God says, I'm going to send the Assyrians, they're my servants. And so we asked the question, is God the restrainer of evil or is he the perpetrator of evil? And like any good parent, you are the restrainer of evil for your children, aren't you? But every now and then you got to lift that restraint and let them suffer the consequences. And that's how I see what's happening through world history with these prophets and the surrounding nations. So they don't listen to the two prophets. But before God lets the Assyrians go over, he sends Jonah to Nineveh, which is one of the capital cities of the Assyrians, to get them to repent. They do temporarily, but they turn right around and they come and annihilate the northern kingdom. They cease to exist. Now, what I mean by that is that they, the people, they scattered them. A lot of them they killed. They did, let's be honest. They were very brutal people. But the northern kingdom ceased to exist as a people group and it never came back. Okay, it never came back together. So the Assyrians did that. And pretty soon the Assyrians start turning their gaze on the southern kingdom. So God sends Nahum to back to Nineveh to let him know, because you did this to the northern kingdom, now you're toast, okay? So then what happens is the Babylonians rise up, they're below the Assyrians over here, and they defeat the Assyrians. So the northern kingdom's gone, all we have left is the southern kingdom. So when this is happening, God sends Micah to the southern kingdom, okay? Because they had a problem, Hezekiah. The refugees from the north were heading south, and they didn't want them there. And so God said through Micah, don't do that. These are your brothers. Welcome them. All right? And so Micah went. Well, and, and Micah's message was also, don't be fooled. Okay? Don't think because you're special that you're going to avoid punishment because uh, the punishment in, prescribed in Deuteronomy is going to match you too. If you, if you turn away from me, and by this time you have a lot of corruption and, and wickedness going on in the southern kingdom, they don't listen. So the Babylonians come and they annihilate the southern kingdom. And so the Babylonians, their policy was different than the Assyrians. The Assyrians scattered everybody so that you'd lose your identity. The Babylonians, they didn't. They let them be together in the different places that they put them. Well, then, because the Babylonians did that, God had said, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. So the Persians came along. And the Persians came along, and they destroyed the Babylonians in 539. So we've gone from 931 with Solomon to 539. That's just several hundred years, okay? The total minor prophets were 300 years, and the last one, Malachi, is 450 years after Solomon. That's one of the reasons I say it shows you how patient God is. He never gives up. He simply doesn't give up on his people, 
We're going to see this. So by now, uh, the temple is, um, oh gosh, 100 years in the past since they destroyed it. So the, we talked, looked at the prophets that, that were sent during the exile. Their message was slightly different. Before the exile, don't do this, stop, turn around. During the exile, you begin to see a shift with those prophets where God says, I haven't forgotten you. Yeah, you're being punished. You know, it's like you punish your kids. You're being punished for what you did, but I haven't forgotten you. So now we're out of the exile under Persia because the Persian foreign policy was different. They took all the exiles and said, just go back to your homeland. It's okay. Okay. And so they became a, uh, a province, if you will, of the Persian empire. So now we're at the end. So they have re- they've come back to the temple. The temple had been destroyed by the time Malachi writes, 100 years in the past. And uh, Haggai, Zechariah had come 30 years before and encouraged the people, get back to it, serve the Lord, obey the covenant, all right? And so one of the things we see with all the minor prophets is the covenant. The covenant language appears in every single one, either in direct language or in illusion, care for the poor, that sort of thing. So now we're with Malachi. He's the last prophet. And the uh, and, uh, temple is now 25 years in the past has been rebuilt. It's nothing like Solomon's temple. It's a ramshackle building compared to what it was under Solomon. The city of Jerusalem does have the walls, but it's not the great city that it was. And so the people there, they're uh, disillusioned, they're cynical, they're callous, they're dishonest. If you study Malachi carefully, you see evidence of all this. They're apathetic, they're doubting, they're skeptical, and there's still a lot of wickedness and sin going on still. We're going to see snippets of that. So... God sends the last prophet. Contemporary with Malachi is you have Ezra and Nehemiah. You also have Esther. She was a queen to a Persian king, remember? You have Daniel. He finishes his time under the Persian Empire. So these people are all there, but this is the last prophet, God's last spoken word. What would you say? 450 years he's been going after him. What would you say? After this, he gets quiet for 400 more years, over 400 years until the Messiah comes. So this is his last warning, his last exhortation to the people. And then he gets quiet and backs up and says, let's see what you're going to do. Let's see what you're going to do. Okay, that's where we're sitting. So Malachi is organized along, and I wish you had time to go through it, but that would take several months just to do that. But it's organized along a series of questions, disputations is what we call it. He allows the people to challenge him. Okay? And the way he does it is because he knows what they're thinking. He says, I know what you're thinking, so here's the question. I'm going to make a statement, and you're going to ask your question, and I'm going to answer it. And then he's going to turn around and give some of his own questions in the meantime. But everything centers on the covenant. Everything. Okay, remember the covenant, because the covenant hasn't changed. Okay? When we say new covenant, it doesn't mean the content has changed. It means the method uh, that God put in place to honor it has changed. So way back here in Exodus 19, it says, If you obey me fully, I will make you a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Why? Priests on behalf of whom? The rest of the world. Here's God. He creates, to use an older metaphor, he creates a a kaleidoscope of nations and chooses one to reach the rest. If you obey me, I'll make you a kingdom of priests. Remember, they were just slaves. They'd only been out about a month and a half, and they find out they're going to be slaves. 
That was Leviticus. So we talked about Leviticus two years ago. So they didn't do it. So when you come all the way down into 1 Peter 2, guess what? He quotes that covenant in its entirety. You are a kingdom of priests because of your faith in Jesus. You are a royal nation, a holy nation. So the covenant hasn't changed. What changed was that the Mosaic law revealed that we could not obey it. And so the Holy Spirit had to come. Jesus had to come and the Holy Spirit both had to come for that to happen. So the covenant language is all throughout here. But listen to how Malachi starts. In chapter 1, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have always loved you. I have always loved you. That's the beginning. And all the evidence is there for that. We're not going to read this section, but they're going, oh yeah, how have you loved us? And he said, I chose Jacob over Esau. I protected you. I brought you out of Israel. I mean, out of Egypt. I wandered with you. I mean, the, the story of all the things that God did. I've always loved you. And then right in the middle of the book, in chapter 3, you have a very famous verse. And these two verses anchor the entire Old Testament. Uh, and today, for that matter. Here it is in chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. That's the only reason you're not destroyed is because I made a promise. I made a promise to love you, to go after you. And I'm not going to break my covenant. And he's going to have covenant language all throughout here. And so he asks these questions and they, uh, and the way to expose what's going on within the nation at the very end of his talking. So the very first thing he does is, uh, and I'm not going to go through all of them, I don't have time, but he calls them to have proper relationships. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 10, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? So why, this is Malachi speaking, why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? And of course they ask the question, yeah, right. Have you seen what God did to us? All the nations at this time around Israel were prospering. And they're mocking and laughing at Israel. Have you seen this temple? Have you seen this city? And really, you want us to turn in faith to God. So here he's asking the question of, of what, is it, what are you talking about that we profane the covenant by being unfaithful to one another? And then he stuns with this imagery of what goes on in a wedding. Here's what you do, verse 13. You flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and you wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. And you ask, why? Why in the world is he doing this to us? Look, he's the one that did all this. Isn't he responsible to this? For this? It is because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Wow. I've said all along, if our divorce rate equals out of the world, we might as well close the doors and go home. Because Paul picks up this theme in Ephesians 5, and he stuns the known world. We like to focus on the verse that says, why submit yourselves to your husbands? But there's actually no Greek verb there to submit. You have to back up one verse. And it says, submit yourselves to one another. And what was considered obedience and property gets equalized. Submit yourselves to one another, which is a concept of putting each other first. And then he surprises us by giving us the clearest example of what that means. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. 
You see, a careful study of the life of Christ will reveal to you that there's not one single thing that Christ did in his own best interest. Not one. That becomes the standard for marriage, and you'll see it here in just a minute. Okay? Sacrifice. Husbands. That's the standard under the new covenant for marriage is sacrifice. And I've argued several times that serving one another doesn't lead to intimacy. Okay, servants serve kings, slaves serve masters. That doesn't lead to intimacy or personal relationship. Sacrifice, and that's what makes us unique among all the world religions. All the Eastern philosophies have the concept of service. There's no, no question about that. But that doesn't lead to a personal relationship. Jesus came to sacrifice himself for us, and that's what leads to a deeply personal relationship. It starts with the cross. Everybody understands that sacrifice, but it's far bigger than that. You see, the sacrifice goes on for eternity. Because when you get to the new Jerusalem, he's standing there with us. He became a human for all of eternity because he wants to be with us. I have always loved you. Okay? Sacrifice is what leads to a personal relationship between people, husband and wife, and with God. So that's why Paul says at the end of Ephesians 5, this is a mystery. I understand that. But I'm speaking about Christ in the church. And I've said many times, your marriages are your first and clearest and most powerful testimony to your belief in Christ. Think about that for you that are struggling in your marriages. For you that have already gone through a bad marriage, I get it. Make the second one best. Learn how to do it. For those of you that aren't yet married, understand that this is your first testimony. If our divorce rate equals the world, we might as well close the doors and go home. Because it is the marriage that symbolizes, Paul says, the relationship of Christ in the church. It's nothing else. You can talk all you want, but listen to what he says to these people. The um, Verse 14, you ask, why? Why is God saying this? It's because the Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. Not your happiness. Get that through your head. Because this world's going to convince you that there's some other woman or man out there that's going to make you happy. Wrong. Okay? That's not what marriage was instituted for. What does God desire? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not un- be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. And in verse 14, he said, the wife of your marriage covenant. You see, that's what makes marriage different in the church. It's not a contract. It's a covenant. I'm still stunned to be very frank and honest with you that our marriage ceremony has, has survived hundreds of years of tradition and it's based on something none of us hold to anymore. Who gives this man to be married to this wife, to this woman? Why is that there? Women, you were property. We no longer hold that, do we? But we're still part of our tradition. Why does a, why does a bride's family pay for the wedding? The wedding bride price, the dowry. We don't do those anymore, but yet our ceremony has survived all that. That's 1,500 years ago. I mean, 1,500 B.C. that those things were there. That's Old Testament imagery. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? That's, that's, 
that's deeply rooted in something that the new covenant overturned. You're not property anymore. And yet we still do this. It's really wild to me how we do it. Now, we've made, we've made it a little more enjoyable, and we've put it in modern, more different language about the special relationship with the Father, and that's nothing wrong with that. Jesus brought that to us. But you can see that this, right at the heart of this, when he's trying to give them his last charge before the Messiah comes, take care of your marriages. We're not based on contract. We're based on covenant. And a covenant is a promise, a commitment that I will never break. It doesn't matter what my wife does. I love my wife very much. And uh, I asked her if I ever am unfaithful, would she forgive me? She says, yeah, you'll just be dead. So <laughs> she's got her answer. I've got mine. <laughs> but it's based on a covenant, not a contract. It's based on sacrifice, not making things equal. Jesus never asked for it to be equal. And that's the model he lays down. But then he goes on there and talks about what justice looks like. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yeah, right. They say, how have we wearied him? Look around us at the destruction and all of that. Really? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or where's the God of justice that he promised throughout the prophets? Where is he? All the nations around us are blessed, but we're not. We're being mocked, ridiculed, and, and you call this justice? Really? This is what you think is... I mean, you can hear the cynicism in there. You can hear the, yeah, right, imagery that they're, that they're... No wonder. No wonder we need the Messiah. It hasn't changed today, by the way. We still feel some of that, don't we? Really? I'm not going to get on my soapbox about the president because I think they're all idiots. Uh, sorry. Can you scratch that from the recording? No, just kidding. Okay, I'll tell you, I've told you before, I'll tell you who the president, ha- which one has my respect. The one that stands up there to the State of the Union, and he says, he or she, doesn't matter to me, he or she says, you know what, our country's going to hell, and I don't have a clue what to do about it. No, what do they always say? Just like the gospel of Caesar, we got it all figured out. That's why Paul came along and said, no, you need to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of Caesar. There is no human and I've said many times, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The president is not my enemy. I pray for the president. Honestly, every time he falls, it just saddens me that they mock him. I say, Lord, I'm so sorry that we're a country who, who takes advantage of and laughs at others. Give him wisdom. If he doesn't know you, help him to come to know you. Okay? The governor is not our enemy. The school board is not our enemy. All right? It's the powers behind it that are our enemies. And so where is this God of justice? That's the question that they're asking. So verse 5, and I took some of it out. He says, I'm going to put you on trial. I'm going to put you on trial. I'll be quick to testify, and he has a bunch of things, but I'm going to skip a little bit ahead. I'm going to be quick to testify against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but they do not fear me. Okay, have we heard this before? You should say yes. Every minor prophet brought it up. Everyone. Just like your marriage is your own personal first step in your testimony, guess what? Our care for the poor and the marginalized is our first step in a church into what we really believe. I say in the classroom all the time with my doctoral students, 
Every church every year should ask the question, if we close the doors today with the neighbors across the street, would they be sad? Would they be glad? Would they even notice? There's only one right answer. The average giving of a church in the United States outside of America is now less, inside America, uh, giving outside the church is less than 1%. So when I was looking at churches after I left the seminary, wanted to become a pastor, uh, I got the financial statements in the packet that they sent me here at this church. The very first thing I did was look at how much money went outside the church doors. It's over 20%. I didn't care about your doctor. That's right. Exactly. That's right. And it's still that. We're working on maintaining that. I didn't care about your doctrine. That could be fixed. Good teaching will turn that around. But you can't change a heart. And this church was generous. Go sit with Jude and ask her about the benevolence. We gave over $100,000 last year to benevolence. If you've never served or in the food bank, go volunteer and watch how they care for poor people by giving out food. Go look at the mission board out there, how many people we support in our missions. And it's over 20% total money that goes out of the church. And I realize that here's a church that shares something that I share, a heart. That's something you can't change. And that was there. And so that's what he's talking about. Every minor prophet nailed them on that. The first people to get hurt are the poor, the marginalized. James goes so far as to say, that's the definition of religion. It's caring for widows and orphans. And that needs to be our first step in our testimony. And if our testimony is not there, we might as well close the doors. Because what we're telling the world is we don't really believe our own theology. Well, then he goes on from there to talk about generosity. Some of you know this, the famous verse, okay, begins with, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the sins of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the day, the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you're asking, how on earth are we to do that? Again, have you seen what's going on around us? You know? By the way, when you look in some of the inner passages in between, he talks about their, they're offering their offers, their offerings and sacrifices, and, they, and their heart's not in it. They don't really care. And he's saying, come back, come back, come back, just like in Zechariah. But you ask, uh, no, uh, he says, will a mere mortal rob God, yet you're robbing me? And they ask, how are we robbing you? How on earth is that happening? He said, in tithes and offerings. You're under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Okay, pause. It's really popular in churches in the West to talk about giving a tithe. I've heard so many pastors and even professors of mine, well, it's a good starting point. No, it's not. It's a lousy starting point. Let me tell you what a tithe is, and you tell me if you keep it. Okay? A tithe is the word for 10%. Okay? But it's not 10% of what you make. It's 10% of everything you own. You put your bicycles, your cars, your assets, your IRAs, your house, everything you own, you give 10%. You got to give two of those every year. That's 20% of everything you own every year. And then there's a third tithe that occurs every third year. So it nets out at 23 and a third percent of your total assets. How many of you give that? You know what the New Testament perspective is? Give it all. You know why? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. You own nothing. You are simply a steward of what God has given you. And it's good to remember that. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 
that he who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows generously will reap generously. And that's how he introduces the whole concept of giving generously to the Lord. Now, what do I say to you every Sunday when we do the offering? I say, thank you for being generous. You take such good care of us. But think about the principle in there. Because Paul then goes on and says, and this is where prosperity gospel is awful close to the truth. They go on and he says, the one who supplied seed to the sower for you to give, in other words, you can plant the seed. You plant a lot, you get a lot. You plant a little, you get a little. The one who supplies seed to the sower is able to replenish that and multiply it so that you will be rich. Oh, wait, wait. That's not what it says. But that's how it's interpreted by prosperity gospel. Why? He's able to replenish it and multiply it so that you can bless even more and be more generous. That's the reason. The reason why you're blessed is not because you're a good person. It's not even because of your skill. God might use that. God decided, he said, I decide who is rich and I decide who is poor. The reason why he blesses some of you with wealth is so you can give it away. Not so you can keep it. So you can be a blessing to others. And this is what he's talking about when he says, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Why does God want food in his house? Because that's where the poor could come and have their needs met. The temple treasury. They could come to the temple of the living God and they would be taken care of. Leviticus says the whole purpose of the law is that there will be no poor among you. Thank you for being generous, by the way. Thank you. But he goes on. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. You don't have to worry about your income. What you have to worry about is greed. That's really what you have to worry about. Well, then the last thing, the last call he gives them is Malachi three thirteen. He says, You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord, yet you ask, What have we said against you? Really? Look at this temple. It's just a ramshackle building. Look at this once great city. It's nothing. All the nations around us are prospering. And you're telling us that we are not faithful to you and being arrogant? Here's his answer. You have said it is futile to serve God. This is what they're saying in their hearts. It's futile to serve God. What do we actually gain by carrying out his requirements? What do we actually get? You ever wonder that? Sure looks like the sinner is blessed a lot more and enjoys life a lot more. That's what the psalmist says. Why do the sinners, why are they blessed? What do we gain by carrying out his requirements? What do we gain by going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. Even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Nothing new under the sun, is there? That describes a lot of our culture, doesn't it? They get away with it. And he's saying, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. 
So here's the response of the remnant. One of the things that we've seen through every minor prophet is a lot of judgment. That's against the nation of rebellious, wicked people. But in every minor prophet, there's a remnant that he's talking to. Right in the middle of Lamentations, the Babylonians are days away from tearing down the walls in Jerusalem. The Lord's mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That was for the remnant. No one else was listening. So here we have the remnant at the end of this Old Testament story. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. That's the same language in Exodus when the people were groaning with the slave, under slavery. The Lord listened and he heard. So a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. It's always going to be the remnant. When Jesus said, narrow is a way and few there are that find it, that's not a joke. That's not a metaphor. That's the truth. Elijah said, Lord, I'm the only one who has not bowed the knee to Baal. And God said, no, there's 7,000. You just don't know them. 7,000 out of a whole nation. (laughs) It's not many. And so here's the remnant at the end of the story, still hoping and trusting. Okay, that's what Hebrews 11 is about. All the people that lived by faith and died. So here's God's promise. Remember how he started. I have always loved you. Always. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. For all that judgment's going to happen. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children back to their parents. There's that restoration of relationships. This is what happens under the new covenant. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. That's his final word. And then he gets quiet. Just like he does with us. He gives us plenty of time to hang ourselves. Plenty of rope. He gets quiet. Okay, I'm going to bless you and see what you do with your with the assets. I'm going to test you and see do you turn away from me or not. That's the God that we serve. That's how much he loves us. The moment he gave us choice and Adam and Eve sinned, suffering became necessary. Otherwise, we would have never turned back to him. If he blessed Adam and Eve in their, in their fallen state, he talks about that in Genesis, they would have never needed him. And so suffering becomes a theological necessity to help us turn back to him. And so now he closes the door, gets quiet, and he waits 400, over 400 years until, as John says, we beheld the glory of the Messiah. The glory came back into the temple in Jesus. We have to let the Lord have his way. We do. But we have a God who starts off with, I have always loved you. Always. That's the God that we serve. So the exhortation to these people, they still fit today, right? Look around. Don't be bothered by all the prosperity that you see. The people that get away with everything they shouldn't get away with, that's God's patience because he wants to see them come to him as well. They're not our enemy. Father, thank you for your goodness. 
Thank you for, um, wow, knowing who we are inside and out. And Lord, doing everything that has to be done to come after us. Thank you for being relentless in your love. Relentless, not only for us, but for the people who are wicked as well. I'm so grateful that you're that kind of God. Forgiving us an abundance of choice. Thank you, Lord, for our church who cares for the poor. So grateful for that. And Lord, thank you for these people sitting right here. Bless them, Lord, because of their generosity. Because they love to take care of our church and help the poor. Thank you for them. In your son's name we pray. Amen.